Welcome back to Beyond the Black Box. We have been loving all of the comments and thoughts that you guys have brought from just the episodes that we put out so far, and your responses to that have been absolutely amazing. We already had a plan for this episode to dive into the animal side of what a learner-centered framework would look like, and we want to tie that into a particular comment that was uh, left, and the comment is this. I would love some application examples of harmful errorless learning. I've mostly seen the concept applied in situations like teaching leave it, wait at the door, etc. And even in those situations, I found the concept of errorless learning elegant but not critical. Assuming folks are still operating within the framework and culture of positive reinforcement, regardless if the dog learned it with, quote, errors, or with the hand closing over the treat a few times... There shouldn't be an excess of frustration, and the dog should easily and happily learn the skill. And I love that because leave it is a great example. It's a behavior that we select because it serves us for the most part. We don't want our dogs scavenging things that are going to cost us money to take them to the vet. We don't want them stealing our sandwich off the counter that we really wanted to eat. (laughs) And so we dictate in many ways how it's going to serve the animal and how it must be performed. And There might be on an abstract level that sense that, you know, we're preserving the dog's safety, but the dog doesn't know that. And so from a values perspective, it isn't a meaningful skill for the dog. And we create this false dichotomy when we believe that we must teach a particular skill to accomplish a particular goal. And that's an instructor-centered, or in this case, trainer-centered mindset. And I find that in a learner-centered framework, and we'll dive more into what this means, that we are operating less around the specifics of the problem. Is the specific, I want to keep you off the counter? Or is the problem, I don't like when you put things in your mouth that that you don't know are safe for you. There are many other perspectives around the problem that we tend to ignore when we offer the solution. When we look at other areas of education and mental health as well, when we're talking about a collaborative sort of framework, one of these strategies is something called presenting the problem, which is where you have a problem and you both come up with different options on how to solve it. And we're often very surprised at the different routes and different ways that other people would come at a problem and still reach a solution that is that meets all of the criteria of each person involved in that process. And we can do the same thing with our dogs, but how we get there, what skills we use, and how we start to look outside of our existing perspectives to do that is a tough process. And it really brings us into the learner-centered framework. Absolutely. I think people are going to be so curious to hear how you do this with dogs, Sarah. Um, I wanted to add a couple of thoughts to the comment that was left. So first, I just want to revisit the concept that we're talking about the potential for harm, not saying that every time someone uses errorless learning or any other training method that there will be harm. It can be dog dependent. We all know that training methods exist on a spectrum, but I feel pretty strongly that the potential for harm exists anytime we're removing the option for input from the learner or from our dogs. Sensitive dogs in particular, but if we have a better option where we can include their input, why not pursue it for all dogs, at least when we can? Um, I also always have to point out the nuance in, that's particular to dog training, where it's not just a question of if a trainer can execute these things well. It's a question of if a novice and potentially unskilled owner can as well. I've certainly had several experiences where someone has handed me either a tool or a training concept and sort of been like, go do this. And my attempts have been very sloppy compared to what a skilled professional could do. And I think that's an issue with something like errorless learning or any number of other concepts as well. One of the things that I like so 
well or so much rather about this style of training and working with a dog is that there just doesn't end up being as much room for people, for me, the owner, to kind of mess it up. Yeah, no, I so love that. That's a really important piece as well. We are teaching the people how to do these things as well. And there's so many factors that go into that. So you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean that harm is always going to be happening, but you know, what are the benefits? When do we need to use it versus something else? Are we maybe over-relying on it where there could be some other beneficial strategies? And I loved the little piece about when we can, because I think that's something that we we sort of underutilize, right? We are very cautious in the amount of agency and choice control, all of these things, input that we allow an animal to have in the process. And there are so many more negotiables than we think there are without sacrificing the things that are important, safety, control, the end goal, the accuracy of what we're trying to get to. We don't have to sacrifice those things just by creating a collaborative environment. And so when we can really opens up when we can expand our perspectives around that. Another thought just had to do with the commenter's language around there shouldn't be an excess of frustration and the dog should easily and happily learn the skill. And I appreciate what they're saying, sort of that if this is well executed, there shouldn't be a problem. But should is a little bit of a value judgment in terms of, you know, potentially the dog in front of you, what kind of day they're having, what their needs are, what underlies the behavior, et cetera. Um, And particularly just coming back to the idea of dog owners, if the dog, if we're putting the onus on ourselves as the humans to interpret body language, to know whether or not the dog's responding well or is stressed by this, that's not always going to go so well. Um, And it just, we have a better way, I think, to get the information. Um, And so I also think about if we're looking for body language, by the time that I'm showing outward signs of frustration, I'm pretty, I've been frustrated for a little while. And I wonder if maybe the same is true for our dogs. And so if we have a way to interrupt that and learn about it sooner directly from them, I am in full support of that. Absolutely. I'd say emotion exists even before we can see it. And oftentimes when we are soliciting input, the animals will tell us that before we can actually observe any body language. I've got video, might be on the blog. It's definitely in the R plus 2.0 community feed where one of the dogs in the program is approaching, a trigger pops out and they make an attempt to stop and redirect. The human misses it, totally normal. A couple feet later, they start to get a little aroused. And at that point, the human notices the body language. But the dog asked to leave actually about five steps prior to that. And so when we are not opening doors for this input, what are we missing as teachers that could help us to actually be more successful in reaching those end goals? And although it feels kinder, maybe there is a more efficient path. If we had just turned around and avoided the trigger altogether, that too would have avoided reactivity. And so we can meet mutually beneficial goals through many different ways. So I want to break this down, going back to the comment, from what a learner-centered alternative to leave it might look like. And it immediately warrants us increasing agency, which will lead into some other discussions about learner-centeredness. But going back to that excess of frustration piece, we talk about this in the agency episode, that frustration by definition is this inability to control your circumstances, to make progress towards your goals, to make change in a situation that you're existing in. And so the opposite of that, just by definition, is agency, that belief that you have that control to do that, the ability to make those changes, to make progress towards your goals. One of my specialties as we get into this example is in working with compulsive and repetitive stereotypic behaviors. So we're talking about 
behaviors that don't serve a really clear observable function that are very intense, they're repetitive, they're impacting both the human and the animal's quality of life. Um, they might be unsafe. And in this particular example, these include intense scavenging behaviors that might include things like incessant ingestion of non-food materials, for example, plastic, paper, rocks, uh, wood, all kinds of things that they are not supposed to be eating, fabrics. And I have successfully and significantly resolved this type of behavior in many cases with these strategies. So this is not me hypothesizing about how to use a learner-centered framework. This is from experience, how I would teach, I'm sorry, leave it from this perspective. The American Psychological Association, the APA, has defined 14 principles of learner-centered instruction. Um, and I want to summarize those into five broader cornerstones of application in this episode, specifically when we're talking about things that we can concretely transfer over to animal training. And they overlap a lot with human education. And Jen, I know this is your area. Just to give it a little bit more clarity. Yeah, Sarah, I love how you have taken these concepts and applied them to dogs. Um, and I'm thrilled to talk through this a little bit from like the human lens and then here, here you do it from the dog lens. Um, so I think that your first cornerstone is uh, being learner-led. And we talked about that at length in our last episode. But as a reminder, it means that we put the learner first and then we create the materials around their experience. And we just mentioned this, but when we're thinking about what a dog's experience is overall, it's a lot of kind of limited choices that can result in frustration and confusion that we may or may not be able to see until we ask them. Um, the other thing I would note about the learner-led aspect of what you do is biasing toward the opt-out and making sure that dogs have not just a way out, but a highly rewarded way out, which confirms if they opt in that they truly intend to opt in based on their own motives rather than on an external reinforcer. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something that it underlies a few of these pillars. And we'll certainly get into kind of what, why that is that it overlaps a bunch of them. But there are some necessary pieces when we talk about being learner-led, especially when we're talking about for an animal, what does that actually mean? What skills would that entail? What concepts does that entail to enable an animal to lead a learning interaction and to collaborate with us? We can't just come into it and say, I know what you like, and therefore this is because I've decided it's for you. It is learner-led. That's not the same thing. <laughs> Having the best intentions and trying to act in your best interest is still leading and directing you. And also that learner-led doesn't mean that they hold all of the power. We still share the power, but when we're talking about an instructor-centered dynamic, we wield power over an animal, a learner, a student. And it goes back to that great quote from that uh, review of errorlessness where it talked about that the praise in U.S. classrooms serves to reinforce the role of the teacher as the distributor of rewards. And so in the same way, we feel good about giving you rewards. We think that you receive that well, but it really serves to reinforce us um, as the one who wields that power over you to control your access to those things. So it is more an emphasis on a collaborative mindset. I think a lot of people get really fearful of these concepts when they think that it means that we're handing over everything to the animal. No, it's a co-piloting situation. And some of the things that we need in order to enable co-piloting are two-way communication. We need input from you, animal, in the moment as we're doing it. And that means often building up some skills to solicit that input before we get into the learning environment, which takes a lot less time than it sounds. <laughs> it's a very quick process. And it also means not relying on body language. Much like we said, the body language comes out a little bit too late. We want to check in with you and have your input 
at every step of the process. We don't want to be reactive once we find that there's a problem. We're trying to really be proactive and prevent problems throughout the learning experience. And agency is a really big piece of that. Having the belief that you can change something about your learning experience enables you to make values-based choices and to use those to communicate with us what you'd like next, whether that is the opt-out and making sure that if you do choose to be here, that that is really based in wanting to be here and really nothing else, that we're not leveraging you into being here because we are holding something valuable over your head. And that's something that we'll circle back to in a little bit. And so an example of this particular pillar cornerstone in the context of wanting to stop a dog from scavenging and uh, getting into things that they shouldn't, putting it in their mouth, ingesting it, whatever it may be. And that's a real goal of leave it, right? It's not just this compliance idea of I say it, you do it. Sometimes it is for people. And if that is what it is for you, okay. For me, it's I want you to stop putting things in your mouth that you shouldn't put in your mouth. <laughs> that's the heart of the goal. And there are many ways to get to that goal. And if we look at the learner-led model of this, it's using two-way communication to access proxy agency, which we covered in our agency episode, how to get others who have the resources and means to act on your behalf, to meet your needs, to access what they want. And that reduces the motivation to scavenge. So this restriction idea of leave it, of stop engaging with that, stop doing that, stop doing this thing is very dismissive of why an animal might be engaging in that behavior. Instead, if we can get opportunities and many different ways exist for us to do this, for them to indicate to what they are interested, what they want out of it. Um, we can really diminish opportunism because opportunism is built on the scarcity aspect of the existence of these things cropping up in their environment. But if we can instead work to meet those needs, we don't have scarcity. We're going to diminish opportunism, which is going to reduce all of that motivation to engage in scavenging. So on a more concrete level, what does this actually look like? Well, one of the behaviors that I use, the idea is that the animal uses joint attention to draw us to something that they found of interest that they might want to put into their mouth. And by doing so, by taking that extra step to pause, bring us into it, we can call that asking permission. But it leads to a higher rate of access to their desired reinforcement because we get a chance to come in and examine the thing and go, okay, that's safe to put in your mouth instead of saying no to everything because we're not sure if it's safe or not. And maybe it was fine. It was something that was harmless. Or give them a safe alternative to that thing without removing them from the thing. And this is a really important piece of it that rather than them having to come away from the desired object, that they are bringing us to it, but they are abstaining from putting it in their face right away. And they are essentially allowing us the space by inviting us to engage with the thing first. We take our turn, we get to investigate it. In the time investigating it, we can swap it for something more valuable. And then it's their turn to investigate. So they still get to complete the sequence. And they get to do so, though, after we've created an environment that is safe to perform the sequence. So we still get to meet all our needs. They still get to meet all of theirs. And so they now go from sometimes I win to always I win. And that is really powerful in building up a skill quickly, building its generalizability and its value to the individual, which is going to lead us into our next cornerstone of being values oriented. So people might be saying, how do dogs possibly have values? So it's important to clarify that we don't mean the humanistic definition, which is a little bit more of the internal guiding compass idea. 
um, we're specifically referencing values out of a relational frame theory model. And I'm going to read a very brief quote from Wilson and Dufresne that um, covers what this means in this specific context. Uh, so within this approach, their defi- values are defined as freely chosen, verbally constructed consequences of ongoing, dynamic, evolving patterns of activity, which establish predominant reinforcers for that activity that are intrinsic in engagement in the valued behavioral pattern itself. And I know that is a lot to take in. Um, and I would specifically call out first the idea of it being verbally constructed. We can just think of that as communication. It doesn't have to be verbal. Even in the human world, there are plenty of folks who communicate non-verbally. So we're looking at communication rather than specifically verbally verbal communication. Um, and there's a lot more to that quote. Um, but Sarah, I think you're going to get into some of that, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The idea being that we are getting information about what is meaningful to you in anything that you use your behavior to access. And so we often, we say, what's the function all the time. And when we're talking about the word function, it's how we access reinforcement. And when we're coming into a behavior that exists and we haven't been treating it, we haven't been reinforcing it, there's already some intrinsic reinforcement value that's happening in that behavioral pattern that is fulfilling some sort of need for that animal. The values piece then is what is the the need that it is filling? What is the thing that is motivating you to do this? It's a little bit different than the motivating operation. It is, it's a larger, broader pattern of those things. So it might be in the moment, um, for example, with reactivity, we teach this choice-based communication to control the human on the walk. They get to tell the human when to go, to stop, to turn around, whatever it may be. And they might make a choice that communicates something like move forward, but moving forward isn't the value. It's the function because it's getting you closer to the reinforcement, but the reinforcement might be moving closer to access to a human that you know and love and want to move towards and interact with. The value is that interaction. It's getting to fulfill that need that you are using that function and that behavior to get to. So values play a role in behavior analysis and not in this abstract, you know, these are our virtues way, but in how we analyze behavior patterns and use them to modify behaviors to our advantage and to really take advantage of intrinsic reinforcement, which is underutilized in the positive reinforcement force-free side of things. Instead, we often rely a lot on extrinsic reinforcement, which is arbitrary. It is not usually related to values at all. We're talking over values. We're saying, hey, do you want to stay in this heel and look up at me and I'll give you treats and you like treats, but is that at all relevant to you wanting to get closer to that person or away from that person? That's the difference between compliance and input. Input is making choices based on the value of the outcome of that particular behavior, regardless of the things that we manipulate around it. Um, So I was thinking anytime that we're talking about using food, I immediately think of the potential for compulsion there and what any, some dogs are maybe not food motivated or less food motivated, but some dogs certainly are. And what a dog will do for food might not be something they're comfortable with. Um, And I always think about that when we talk about bringing in extrinsic reinforcement, which again, is not to say that I don't use it. I do. Um, But I think when we're looking in particular at things like behavioral modification, it's really worth considering what role it plays The other thing, um, if I'm understanding correctly, I think there's a weakness there that sometimes when we're using and relying on only extrinsic reinforcement and then say the treats or the toy goes away, the behavior that we're looking for, the desirable behavior also goes away. Have you, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's maintained by that reinforcement history. And that's where we talk about, you know, and not at the same rate. We're not 
always, you know, feeding every little instance of behavior, but we are maintaining behaviors that are externally taught and maybe don't hold a lot of intrinsic value will require a lot more extrinsic maintenance throughout their life, or they will regress. Um, Because what other factors are fueling that motivating operation to continue engaging in that behavior? If it is not values driven, what we have to add that value. And that's what the extrinsic element of toys and treats and praise does. And so you're right. It, it, those things are inherently compulsive. When we say compulsive, it doesn't have the same connotation when we're talking about compulsion training. But that actual definition of being compelling, being able to convince with the power of this thing, you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do. That's why we use it, because it allows us to modify things, to manipulate your behavior and to exert our control over you. And so that's where when we're looking at other models in the human world and industries, wielding extrinsic reinforcement is not standard practice. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. You know, is it something that potentially, even though it seems very kind to be giving you a lot of these things, has pitfalls? And that's what we've found when we're looking at the literature and the experiences people report in errorless learning, that they were receiving things, stickers, lollipops, all this fun stuff. But when the skill, the goal itself was arbitrated by the human and imposed on the person, yet it met a need for that person and they weren't able to access it, that is perceived as aversive, even if you're getting good things. And so in this sort of values-oriented perspective, looking back at Leave It, these type of dogs that are compulsively scavenging, and even normal dogs, I mean, it's a need, right? There's some reason why they're doing that. But I want to talk about a really extreme version of that, where this behavior is often and highly correlated with invisible GI issues, where we're not seeing any other symptoms. We're not seeing dogs with diarrhea or vomiting or other issues going on. They might sometimes be picky eaters. They might sometimes not be. The only symptom sometimes we see is this behavior. And so when we modify this behavior, especially in a way that leaves no other options available, are we sacrificing input on when they might not be feeling their best and therefore not allowing them to access the conditions that allow them to feel better? So an example for this, there was a Weimar and I worked with many years ago that had a pretty extreme version of this and was on medication for OCD. Um, compulsively eating like plastic bags, anything that they could find. And throughout the day, they were limited to their two meals a day because they knew that this dog had GI issues. So wasn't able to get a lot of treats and was using the scavenging for whatever reason to self-soothe this behavior. And the reason that we know that's kind of true is how we substituted it out. Um, And even on different medications, all these things that should help to relieve these symptoms Being able to just exert your agency to meet your own needs has such a powerful effect in the ability for this dog to go find things and recruit us to let us know if it was okay to eat that or not. So a plastic bag, no, you probably can't have that, but we'll give you something else instead. What was happening throughout the day otherwise was was that this dog was being told no and having these things repeatedly taken away. And instead, we shifted towards, okay, you can't put that in your mouth, but now you can instead have something else as an alternative. And that was able to do enough for whatever reason to meet that need that eventually, and pretty quickly, actually, she started just asking directly for the source for some snacks. And it was just the prescription kibble that she'd get all throughout the rest of the day. But instead of her two large meals morning and night, she really preferred to have it in smaller doses throughout the day. And the scavenging behavior stopped because the need was met. The communication was there. The input was there. We didn't have to rely on micromanaging it when we're able to 
solicit this input to solve the problem, not just solve it because we impose what the solution is. And in that way, that's why values informs motivating operations that informs the whole antecedent that kicks off the chain of behavior. And it is so underutilized. And it made it so that we really didn't have to rely a lot of on extrinsic reinforcement. We weren't trying to convince this dog, hey, leave that alone and I'll give you something else instead. It was her ability to communicate that she needed that instead that we just, uh, we gave it to her. It wasn't meant to be this way of exerting control over getting her to stop and interrupt a behavior. It took an entirely different path. And extrinsic reinforcement, I have so many different feelings on because of its ability to prevent that that whole experience of getting input, getting insight, and also not to harness the thing that's most important to you, not to wield it over you, but in order to fulfill it. And so we could do a whole other episode on that one. And we will. And Sarah, the process and solution that you just described, that is what I would call elegant. I mean, amazing. Um, It's such a simple solution that the dog was able to communicate and didn't really require anything of the humans other than sort of redistributing how the dog got its calories. <laughs> Amazing. And we would never have known if we didn't have the opportunity for that. We could have taught leave it, but would that have satisfied the dog? It would have satisfied the person. But it also, it brings us back up to values a little bit in that sometimes we have a bit of a, a cap, a ceiling on our ability to wield power with extrinsic reinforcement too. We can only convince you so much that this skill is valuable of leaving it alone. And we have to counter that with something. That's where we talk about higher value traits, right? We want to counter that with more value than what you're going towards. And this is something that I know is is really hard for people to understand, especially in other methodologies. They're like, well, if your dog wants to chase something, what's a cookie going to do? You know, there's a lot more to values than just trying to negotiate and, um, compromise on what that's going to be. But when we do that, when we're trying to convince, you know, this is better, no, this is better. We're not really listening to that other piece. There are going to be times when the value intrinsic to whatever that behavior is outweighs whatever you're going to offer and outweighs whatever risk could come with that behavior as well. And so we will see opportunism rear its head, especially if just like you said, when the treats go away and we're not you know, maybe perceived as accessible in that there could be a calculation of this is right here. That may take me longer. How are we going to solve this? I'd rather have the sandwich and pay the biper on that one um, and see what happens. That is so much more beneficial. It feels like it reinforces that sense of agency, that sense of connection and proxy agency of getting you to meet their needs rather than being in competition or conflict with each other's needs in which they might start avoiding you and scavenging when you're not in the room, which I know is a fun universal experience a lot of people have had. Um, But getting to really get involved in that information, there's so much to be gained and so little to be lost. And it's such a quick process. That's the thing that I think so many people lose when values are overridden and ignored and just not involved in the process of constructing and collaborating on a plan at all how fast this stuff not only comes together because it's serving the dog. They're going, oh my God, this is great. I could have anything. So I'm going to ask you for sticks and trash and all this stuff. And they start asking you for everything almost excessively. And you're like, I don't need you to ask for all this. Some of it you can just have, Um, but thanks. (laughs) And how quickly that generalizes as well. It does not take the same repetition as it does to convince you that your values are wrong. Absolutely. If we go to kind of the next cornerstone, which is situating 
things in relevant real life experiences that might help clarify how what we're talking about here is different. So I think of this as kind of creating successive approximations of the environment, not just for exposure, not just so that the dog gets to be somewhere that they aren't as uncomfortable, but actually so that they get to fully safely explore and answer any questions they have about what's going on. And I've seen people do this, you know, using a fake dog to explore what whether a dog is aggressive or reactive or any shade of gray in between. Um, but this is a little bit different. Um, so Sarah, do you want to talk about how it's different? Absolutely, I do. There is a huge role that agency plays in encountering aversive things, enduring aversive things, and even pushing through punishment contingencies for a long-term goal of reinforcement. And we see that in the literature time and time again. So tying it into this relevant to real life experiences piece, we often wait until we're sort of in the context of a problem to do the teaching around the problem, which is very different in a learner-centered framework is that we want to give you some tools and then start to situate it in an environment that looks similar to real life, but is buffered from the impacts of real life. And so in this leave it example, we might in an airless mindset, you know, be working absent the distractions and we put it on the floor and we're keeping you in a down. We're starting you in the the position that we want you to be in. But when we're in a learner-centered framework, we want to create a safe space for the learner to explore the options available to them and determine for themselves the value in the knowledge. Because when they decide that something is valuable and aligns with their values, it is so much more potent in how it is encoded, retrieved, practiced over time, generalized, all of those pieces. Then if we try to tell you this is valuable and we see this, and this is why this is the standard in human education, human therapy as well, behavior change learning has to come from within. We cannot impart it on you. That's why you will never see me doing math. I hate it. Um, For being the nerd that I am, I hate it so much. And so when we're trying to teach this leave it piece. We might teach the communication part, which is just like you look at something, I'm going to look at it and then I'll, I'm going to go fetch something and give it to you. So maybe we have like a bag of treats. We put it on the counter. We notice the dog noticing it. We walk over, we take a piece of treat and we give it to them. And then they start going, oh, like I looked at it. Did you see me looking at it again? This can happen in like five repetitions. It happens so fast that they start to go, yeah, another one. (laughs) And they're looking right at it. And then you move the bag to a different area. And they're like, does it still work in a different area? Look at it. Yeah, another one. Cool. Thanks. Now they've learned how to use joint attention to get your attention to things and get that to build up. That is a highly generalizable skill that they can use to draw your attention to absolutely anything that they need. And that can be built into recruiting your help for other found things. So if we needed to put this on a particular context, like a dog that is scavenging on walks, then I might take that bag of treats, put the dog on leash, put it on the ground, walk around with the dog. And when the dog looks at or acknowledges the bag from afar, I'll go get the treat and give it to them before they feel the need to go up and try to break into that bag. So they're already getting kind of like a, oh, the easiest, like I can get you to bring it to me like a butler. That's amazing. That takes so much less effort and it's so much easier. And then the same idea, we start to put the treats on the ground and they start to do this thing pretty pretty much on their own. It's pretty organic, but there are a couple steps we can take if it doesn't come together where they'll walk up to the treats that are on the ground and they won't snap at them right away. They'll look at you first and then they'll get you to either like say yes or deliver them to their face. And all of a sudden you've just built that little piece in where you became valuable, not because you were withholding food from them, but you made yourself the gateway without having to diminish their access 
in any way. You were able to just become a part of that sequence and they draw you in. And that has so much value too, because dogs want to be around us. They want to engage with us. And so in order to put that into more of a real life context, but buffer what that could lead to in terms of impact for the dog, because our ultimate goal is to keep the dog safe, right? We don't want you eating things that you shouldn't have that we don't know are safe for you. And also don't eat the things that are important to me. So not so safety, just (laughs) so that I don't, you know, get upset with you, dog. Um, So already having like food on the counter treats on a plate, we can start to use that context. And if the dog jumps up and they eat their own kibble, so what, you know, it really, this idea that if they do it once, they're going to do it again. It's really, it's not going to happen that way. They find that there's a much higher success rate in recruiting you and they tend to put that extra effort into it. So it's okay that they make a mistake in that environment. We want to create an environment where they can explore those options, see how they play out. And if that happens, then maybe we add a little bit more care to how that works. So instead of just putting treats on a plate, we put it in a Tupperware container that has holes punched in it so they can still smell it. But if they were to get it off the counter, they're still not successful without our help. And that way we can still manipulate that value of recruiting us by getting creative with how we give them space to explore these skills. And then we can take that outside. Same idea. You found the Tupperware container. You found um, there's a toy, I think it's Westpaw that makes it called a Quizzle that is meant for inserting bully sticks into it. And I've used that for so many different things that dogs shouldn't eat, but tend to find like toilet paper rolls, paper, you can stick that in there. And that way they start to chew it, they get the taste, but they can't rip pieces off and ingest them in it, which is nice. Um, Dogs that eat dead animals that you find, they have feeder frozen mice at the pet stores. It's disgusting, but you can shove one of those in there. It's a dead animal and you can use that as it's not the end of the world. They're not ingesting the dead animal or if they do, it's a feeder mouse it's going to be okay. (laughs) We know that there's, it's not some, you know, diseased animal on the side of the road that is decaying. Um, There's so many different ways to get creative with practicing these things and creating the context to allow your dog, your animal of any kind to explore how these skills can better serve them than the skills that they're already utilizing without us having to impose our will upon them. And that leads to just so much it's a higher degree of compliance, even though we're not really seeking compliance. Yeah. Um, the, the Chloe reactivity equivalent of the, you know, if the dog jumps up on the counter and eats the kibble um, and who cares, that's fine. That's an exploration and it's okay. Is working with a fake dog that my reactive dog can approach and give a little chomp on the tail and see what happens. Does that result in the behavior that my little dog intended? Maybe, maybe not, but she gets to explore that in a safe context. Um, And I think part of those setups, Sarah, I've heard you say is also that it lowers the stakes for the human because we're not panicking about what our dogs are going to do because there's no harm in that can come from these setups. Even in the example of of the mouse, which I love how creative this gets, Um, but in the example of the mouse, ideally the dog doesn't eat it, but if they do... It's not a it's not a physical safety issue, and so it's kind of okay, um, more so than something that they might find randomly on the street. So it's really crafted both for the dogs to be able to explore and for the human to feel comfortable with the dog's exploration. Yes, absolutely. And in that way, it ties to alternatives to airlessness. Right? We don't want there to be frustration, and we don't want to be stuck reacting to things that we perceive as wrong or unsafe. So that you know, when you're doing something, we're we're interrupting you. We're stopping you. We're doing things that could be perceived as punishing and aversive. And so it is a great stepping stone 
from other methods that rely on high levels of punishment or aversive contingencies to suppress behavioral options. Certainly, it has its merits. But when we're trying to, and we'll get into the the next few pillars are going to build more into this, cultivate animals that are able to really make good decisions on their own. It doesn't do as much of those things when we're crafting it around them and not giving them space to explore these thought processes in the same way that we see with humans. And so it is space to allow us to buffer those mistakes so that we're going back to that, what is an error? Are we arbitrating what's right and wrong? If engaging with the thing is no longer wrong or it's no longer carrying that weight of risk, we don't respond to it in the same way. So we can still create an experience that doesn't have that that weight behind it, even if you explore things that we ultimately don't want to build up. And that's okay. So Chloe biting the leg of the fake dog or the tail of the fake dog is a great example in that it allows us to explore what you would do in this situation, offer you more functional alternatives and try to manipulate value, but still preserve your sense of agency, your sense of communication so that we can test for the fact that we're really building those changes before we go out in the real world and try them with real dogs. So you just mentioned testing for changes. And I think that the fourth pillar is evidence-based and carefully crafted approaches. And that leads us nicely there. It definitely does. And although being science-based, the evidence-based part absolutely you know fits in. We are talking a lot about the literature and learning, and it certainly pulls from all of that. I like to try to keep up with it as much as I can. And I will say outright, I am not an expert in human education, human mental health, any of these things. Like I have no authority in those realms, but I spend a lot of time reading this literature and trying to find ways to apply it so that we can try to catch up to the standards in those industry and be aware of why some of the practices that we find standard with animals may not have the merits or the benefits in some situations that we have been touting for a long time. I like to just constantly kind of be kind of critical about my own growth and what steps I could be taking to continue to evolve. So that evidence-based piece of the literature certainly fits in. But beyond that, behavior analysis as a science is really a big cornerstone of this for me. So it isn't this theoretical trying to just be really kind, give choices and agency piece, but understanding the fundamental components of any behavioral contingency of how these pieces fit together in somewhat of a formulaic way. It does feel kind of mechanistic. I know for a lot of people, but that really helps me get to these pieces of what is important. So you mentioned early on biasing towards the opt-out, for example, and I did a whole webinar on this for anyone who wants to dig a little deeper into what choice-based communication means and how these mechanisms actually work. But the idea being that if we have a situation like where we talk about a reactive dog wanting to, do you want to approach or do you not? Are you, are you moving because I'm rewarding you for eye contact or are you moving because you want to get closer to that thing? We can't separate those two without clarifying those contingencies. And that means removing extrinsic reinforcement for the thing that we're trying to identify the value on. That means not giving it extra weight so we can see how much this holds and how much draw it actually has on you without those additional layers. And that feels very uncomfortable for people to rely on functional reinforcement and to accept when functional reinforcement isn't present for a skill that they want to see is a tough one too. The biasing piece is particularly when we want to preserve safety, because I think people get very worried when we're talking about agency choice and behavior modification. And I talked about working with these compulsive dogs, but also my other specialty is reactivity and aggression. And we don't want dogs to hurt anyone. 
We don't want anyone to be unsafe. We don't want to get pulled into situations we can't endure and navigate safely. And so by doing this, what we we do is we actually use those extrinsic reinforcements to bias for the answers that carry the least risk. So like turning away from the person instead of approaching them, we'll, we'll give you all the treats for that. But if you want to move towards that person, I'm not going to give you any additional things. So you're choosing to give up food to move towards that person. Not only does that tell me that you want to move towards that person, but it tells me that it outweighs the value of food. And that gives me a much clearer measure of the intensity of a particular motivating operation that I can't otherwise observe. So I often joke that it's like quantum behavior (laughs) that we're trying to create these, these pieces that allow us to measure things that we can't otherwise observe. And in doing so, I can be a lot more confident that when you get to that thing, that you're going to be calm, comfortable, relaxed, whatever it may be, and be able to cope with that that experience instead of me driving you closer and not realizing I was doing that with food. And then you get into it and I'm watching your body language and I'm trying to react too quickly for you. So it all circles back as well to making it easier on dog owners to implement this stuff. If we have some certainty there, we have some affirmation from the dogs of what exactly they need and also empower them with the ability to tell us when it isn't what they need. And we can honor that really, really well. We build that up almost more than engaging with their triggers. Then there's a lot less risk for dog guardians to engage in any situations or get themselves into situations where they're going to be over their head. And for anyone who is sitting there thinking, if I'm rewarding my dog for moving away from the trigger, aren't they always going to want to move away from the trigger? And the answer, I think, is it depends on your dog and what they want. If they want to move toward the trigger, they're going to move toward the trigger. And if they don't want to move toward the trigger, they're going to move away from the trigger, sort of regardless of the food. But the higher risk situation is for them to move toward it. And so we want to be sure that that's what they're opting into. And if they move away, that's fine. Great. Have a cookie, have a treat. The other piece would be that we can introduce opportunities for them to ask for food regardless of the presence of the trigger. So they can have a cookie anytime they want it. We teach them how to ask for it and they get one if they move away from a trigger because we're biasing toward that opt out. So a little bit of clarification for anyone who is sort of like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I I know the the fact that I really don't incorporate a lot of food and extrinsic motivation into choice-based communication is a really weird for people when they first encounter it, but that does not mean that it is lacking positive reinforcement. It is still firmly based and rooted in positive reinforcement, but we are working on values-oriented functional reinforcement, and that's that's something entirely different, but that doesn't mean that we're not giving you opportunities to have food if that is your value, but we're not tying that with movement. So if you want food, we're not also moving with you and adding these potential costs that we could be using to override your input or to um, make choices for you that we don't realize that we're doing, which we do oh so very often. And so, so much of this is in that evidence-based piece, really looking at our own biases, our own actions and the way that we think that we're impacting our animals and asking questions and going, okay, if this, if that is true, how do we prove it? So that we aren't relying on assumption. I refuse to (laughs) make assumptions when I come into things with dogs. So you said exactly that, that, you know, will your dog always turn away? It depends. Certainly it does. I see a lot of dogs that, uh, honestly don't, we give them the tools for ask to ask for food. We know that they can do it and they don't do it. They want the function for everything. And I still find with Chloe that I am often surprised. I will realize I'm starting to get ahead of her and I'm like, you wanted to go this way. Can we just go this way? But she is going a different 
way. And that means she does not want to go the way that I thought that she wanted to go. And this happens to me all the time where I'm so busy guiding that I forget to listen or I temporarily stop listening and then realize that I'm being silly because my goal really is to listen to her as much as possible on walks. And so if she turns right, why am I still going straight? But it happens all the time. It's amazing how the default for, I'm going to go out on a limb and say a lot of us, is in fact to just sort of control things. And we mean well, I don't mean to do any harm by trying to go straight but I'm missing what my dog is telling me just because I have an idea in my head of where we are supposed to be going. And similarly with food, you mentioned that dogs don't tend to ask for it. I totally got hung up in this where I was like, oh, I think she misses food. I'm going to reintroduce it. And she does now have a cue that she uses for me to give her food. So she does a thing. I give her food. She has only asked for food maybe twice when we've been outside. And it's been weeks that we've had this introduced. I don't think she needs the food. (laughs) It was, again, an assumption that I was making on her behalf. And what I love about all of this is that it empowers the dog to give that feedback. And so we are not operating just on assumptions. We have a concrete way to verify that what we think we're doing that's helpful actually is or is not helpful for the dog. Absolutely. And that so many of us do that exact thing of wanting to, with the best intentions, serve our dogs and sort of anticipate their needs, I think is more what we're trying to do. But that leads us into assumption space. And so often we're wrong. The amount of times the dogs have humbled me (laughs) in giving them choices. I'm like, I'm sure you want to move away from that thing. And they're like, no, actually, I want to stare at it for 20 minutes. And then I want to go sniff it. You're like, okay, sure fine. As long as you can, you know, tell me every step of the way that you're ready for this. And we're going to continue this conversation endlessly until we get through the entire interaction, which is sort of foreign to us. I think we like, we want to make sure that you're listening to us to check if you're okay, which is a very, very different mindset. Um, I love what you said about having an idea in your head of where you're supposed to be going because it isn't intentional. We're not trying to direct, but we have to acknowledge that there are things that just exist on a sociocultural level, right? Sidewalks being one of them, crosswalks, the idea of not jaywalking, cars, uh, not entering people's yards that are social constructs that our dogs have no ideas about. And so when we take them on walks, there are options that they have deduced are not available to them. And that also limits communication and input. And so We have to not just look at what we're seeing in our dogs and what we're observing. It can give us sort of a false measure, and it often leads towards confirmation bias. They never ask to go right, so they don't want to go right. Maybe they've always learned that we go left, and so what we're seeing is actually rule-governed behavior where they've derived a rule for themselves where they went, the rule is we turn left, and they don't try other things. And so we have to kind of go back to what skills need to be a part of learner-centered learning, it involves teaching you what options are available, even if we think that you know them all. Because so often, I can't tell you how many times people say, my dog, I already follow my dog. My dog already makes choices on the walk. My dog already decides where we go. And we start actually introducing this in a very clear cut way. And it is the exact opposite of what they thought their dog wanted. (laughs) And it happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, I've been at this for like five seconds and it happens all the time. I've heard it so many times already. And it is fundamentally different to be following your dog around and doing what you think they want to do versus concretely having them empowered to communicate to you what they want and agreeing to do it. 
fundamentally different, difficult to capture unless you've experienced it, I think, but they're really, really not the same thing. You're missing the two-way communication and you're missing a way to check and you're operating on assumptions, which you could be right, but I'm going to bet that a lot of us are wrong a significantly higher proportion than we're right just because that that's what I've seen in the five seconds I've been at this. And it seemed, it makes sense. We have a lot of assumptions about how life should be with dogs. So. Absolutely. And it, our dogs are always learning around us, right? So they're making a lot of assumptions about us too. And that's at the heart of what we talk about here. All the things that we don't really dive into in behaviorism and training is that the cognitive elements, the capacity and maybe potential for us to expand beyond the things that we already talk about in training, which excite me to no end. But I do see it all the time. And I'm guilty of it too. We all do it. No one think that anyone's perfect. But it's really interesting when we think about how this even happens with humans. Let's say we're like, we're going on a walk with somebody or we're walking around a mall. I think we can all like imagine a time we've been walking with someone, right? Or maybe we're engaged in something. We're talking, we're doing something else. And then you look up and all of a sudden you're like, where, where are we? And they're like, I don't know. I was following you. And you're like, I don't know. I was following you. I have no idea. Are we stuck in that dynamic with our dogs <laughs> where we're like, I'm following you, but they think they're following us. And when we stop and we actually ask and we say, is this where you want to go? Is this where you want to be? Which direction do you want to go? The answer is always, and I, I don't like to make generalizations, but I've been doing this for years now. The answers always surprise me. Yeah. The concept of driving from behind or being a backseat driver um, really blew my mind as somebody who knew very little about dog body language and things like that. And now that I can see it so crystal clearly wherever I am in proximity to Chloe, I am affecting her movements. And I had no idea, which takes me all the way back to something we talked about at the beginning, which is that it's not just about the trainer skill and applying this. It's about an owner skill as well. And the system made it so simple for me to just ask my dog what she needed. And I say yes, whenever I can, sometimes there are no's and that's fine. But I learned so much about the ways that I had been controlling her and had no idea, including this sort of driving from behind with the leash thing. Um, you know, stepping toward her can throw her into a reaction um, or having my feet turned a certain way can block her from the way that she wants to go. Um, so many doors to that information opened using this. Absolutely. And as all these things are interconnected, right, it takes us back to that values piece and why the potential for harm in what we're talking about, circling back to the comment, you know, where airless learning can cause harm, the potential is that lack of input, right? And that's where even if it seems benign, everything seems to be going okay. But what we see when we don't do this, when we offer the opposite, when we increase agency, when we increase input, when we are doing things that are deliberately contrasted with the traditional airless learning approach, and there is a designated procedure, we defined it in the episode, that the behaviors that we consider problematic decrease in intensity and frequency and sometimes even extinguish so rapidly. And it calls into question what fuels those things. Because if the fuel behind those things is not getting your needs met, and because we're talking over you endlessly and mindlessly, we don't know that we're doing that. Continuing a procedure that focuses on doing that does harm. It does harm because it prevents us not only in not meeting the need of the animal, but it also does harm for our training processes. We could make so much more efficient and effective process of progress with mutually beneficial outcomes than by trying to, in the kindest way, guide you toward the answer that I have determined is right for you. Yep. 
Um, I think an example of that for me could be magnet hand, where um, typically using magnet hand for me, I'm on a sidewalk, someone's coming toward us. And if I can't go across the street to get away from them, or there isn't an alley or something to duck into, I would typically get Chloe into a magnet hand and continue toward the person. Because if I turn around, they're just going to catch up to us. So we would have to go past them. Now she can, on her of her own volition, choose to turn around and walk away from them. And if they catch up, she knows that they're there and there is no reaction night and day. Yeah, absolutely. Her tolerance of triggers is just incredible. And what does it do to feel empowered to have some skills to negotiate situations that feel uncomfortable, even if the power that you have is very limited, right? It's, it's, you can turn me around. We can go this other direction. You don't get to control what that trigger does, but just those little pieces seem to make experiences more tolerable. And the literature tells us that too. Yeah. And it's not just having one choice. It's having any, it's having the gamut of choices. Um, coming back to the idea of if we say no, do they stop asking um, or taking it into a different context? <laughs> this dog, my dog has generalized this so much because it's a framework for communication. It's not just a particular skill. And so I feel like once they start talking, like try and get them to stop. <laughs> it's, it's pretty resilient. Definitely that. And it brings us back to what we discussed in the last episode too, of constructivism, right? Yeah. Um, we're trying to engage you, the learner, in helping to construct the learning experience. And so how do we do that with dogs? How do we get them to collaborate? Not just because we've heard your opinion and now we're honoring your opinion, but when we give you these little building blocks, like you can get me to start moving and stop moving and turn me and things that are adjacent to our experience with triggers or other things, even just things that we want, because those skills are innate, no matter if we're trying to approach something we like, get away from something we don't like, those pieces, the motivation is actually irrelevant to the skills you need to construct your way around those pieces. And when we give you the little tiny building blocks and the smallest pieces that we can, instead of saying, you can turn me right or left, which are pretty broad in general and may not meet the needs, but we give you tiny pieces, you construct answers that meet your needs. And that could be go across the street, then turn right, then turn left and go down this alley and then hide between two garbage cans. And you'd be like, okay, I didn't even know these garbage cans were here, but that was the solution that your dog wanted to avoid reacting to all this th these things in this big city. And so the through that two-way communication, but not just the communication of asking and you going, okay, I'm ready, or what very simplistic or even binary choices of yes and no, building blocks to construct answers that we haven't conceived of. I The words can't describe the benefit that I have seen reaped by all parties involved in this. Which has taken us directly into the fifth pillar, which is uh, competency-based versus skill-based. And to bring that into kind of a more human example of the contrast, um, a skill would be just a single skill, right? One way to do a thing. So I can learn how to use a key to open a door. If we're teaching instead for competence, it's the ability to apply or use an entire set of related knowledge skills and abilities to successfully per perform tasks. So I could learn to use a key. I could learn to pick a lock. I could learn to try the doorknob first to see if the door might be open. So having a much broader set of options in front of me expands my ability to interact with the world in a way that I still control. Yes. In a way to problem solve absent our ability to micromanage your problem solving. And so this brings us back to the beginning where I said that we often construct training in and around the problem. And it's sort of myopic. 
And when we circle back to leave it, right, the idea is we teach you leave the treat on the floor, leave the thing on the counter. And it gets very strict and contextual. And it also relies a lot on our ability to prompt and interrupt. And sometimes they self-interrupt and they start to learn to do that, to anticipate the treat. We still have that risk of opportunism uh, when the value of the thing outweighs the potential reinforcement history that we've attached to it. But a competency-based framework that is building not just towards this discrete skill of you turn away when I say leave it. We have evaluating the value of a thing, recruiting our attention towards it, even if the thing is not something that you want to put in your face. Learning to, instead of going and getting the plastic bag, skip that entirely and go to the source to ask for food now totally different piece that you've constructed as a part of that that isn't possible when it is under the very strict and concrete control of a discriminatory cue and response chain. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. It's really exciting space and we're going to We're going to dive way more into it. These are a lot of threads that underlie so much of this stuff that we're excited to talk about. And also, we really want to hear from you guys, or we would love to even do uh, maybe a live or something and have you guys engage and be able to ask questions or discuss this stuff with us. We do not think that we are like the experts in all of this. We just are nerds who love to have these conversations, and we hope that you will join us in them. Yeah, we, I am definitely not an expert. I'm an expert in being a dog mom. <laughs> That's all I've got. Um, but I do love talking about this stuff. And when it comes to, I think for, for both of us, if I can speak for both of us, the limit does not exist to how much we enjoy talking about this and how much we are willing to talk about this. And so absolutely feel free to reach out. Um, and we would be more than happy to both hear from you, answer questions, talk theories, all of it, take criticism. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Criticism too, or, you know, talk about why maybe you're not so certain about certain things. It helps us to solidify our position. You know, maybe we change that. We're totally open to that. We're not steadfast or trying to preach to anyone. Just want to open up more of these possibilities and ask more questions because you're right. The limit does not exist. <laughs>